This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Yeah, he is a locker room divider. He can be a problem. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. It is a Wednesday drive. Where all this week, I've just been amazed watching how okay many sports fans and sports media are with watching college football slowly turn into the NFL. And listen, I'm someone who loves pro football, but has always preferred the college game first. I'm somebody that likes new. I don't rail against new music. I'm not one of those that say, the time when I was a kid was the greatest. I'm actually jealous of kids and the music, what they have today. They don't know about the struggles of LimeWire or a Walkman. They're not wowed by the revolutionary shuffle button, the shuffle feature, right? No, they have access to whatever music, whatever shows they want, on demand at the touch of their fingers. I've got Amazon Prime, I've got Apple Music, you name it. I'm envious of that. So I like new. I like listening to new music, watching new movies, being exposed to new things. So I'm not approaching this from the crotchety old man perspective. But I am approaching it from somebody that cares about college sports, does not want to see it turn into the NFL, because I think having those two things be different is best for us, the consumer. It's been hard reconciling some of the fallout of Texas and Oklahoma getting set to join the SEC. And I really do hope this is just me being a stubborn fool who doesn't like change. I don't think that's what's happening, though. I can't shake this feeling that college football is in danger of going way too far with these changes. Now, what is too far? Too far, to me, would be disrupting What makes college different from the National Football League? What makes college ball different than pro football? And I've said this many times. Hey, Josh, why do you prefer college football to the NFL? I think it's variety of play, different styles, different leagues, different competition, different level of talent. It's different campuses, different stadiums, different regions represented that you don't really see on TV in pro sports. You don't really see those small towns that often. There's a place for the little guy. Those are things that you have in college that makes college pretty special. And variety is the big one. Like, I can't think of an apt comparison in the NFL to watching Paul Johnson in the ACC run the triple option all those years, or Ken Niamatololo, if Navy went up against Mississippi State and Mike Leach throwing the ball all over the yard, there's nothing like that that compares. In the NFL, everybody's trying to do the same thing. Now, there might be a year or two where you see fads, but they are quickly worked out of the sport. The Wildcat comes to mind with the late Tony Sperano running it when Tom Brady tore his ACL the one year Matt Castle was starting games. The Dolphins won the division in the AFC East, and they ran it with Ronnie Brown and Ricky Williams. But 
that quickly was figured out. And many of the other fads have been figured out as well. Everybody tries to do similar things in the NFL. In college, variation works. And if you have a 32-team Super League, like some are suggesting, you have some of these 40-team conferences I'm seeing talked about, bandied about, discussed on television, on radio, and online that looks a lot like the NFL. Hey, you've got these 40 to 45 teams with a 12 to 16 team playoff. What else would you call it? What I'd call it is not that different from the NFL and not a lot of variety there. If you've got one body speaking for everyone, the SEC-ACC merger idea from Jay Billis. I appreciate Jay for being thoughtful, thinking outside the box a bit, but that doesn't work for a handful of reasons. Chief among them, I don't think the ACC has a lot that the SEC wants. They want Clemson. I don't know what else they want. Maybe North Carolina, possibly, and Given the gap in revenue between the SEC and ACC, what power would the SEC give the ACC? It'd look more like an acquisition than a merger if it was the SEC and ACC coming together. And if that's the case, well, that looks a lot like one of these professional sports leagues, which I don't want to see. I still love college sports. See, when this... Super League was created in Europe a few months ago. You remember this? Manchester United, Chelsea, and these other great European teams, they're going to come together and create a Super League. It nearly led to riots. People lost their minds over this. They lost it to the point where the teams within a couple of days said, no, 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 we weren't serious. We're not going to do this. We're sorry. We're so sorry. The public did that. And I hope if we get to a certain point with this, college football fans will get to a point where they just say no. The question is, in America, is there a point where fans would get that mad? And I do think the answer to that question is yes. And if if we do get to that point, will college commissioners, would Greg Sankey be willing to recoil even if it means turning away some cash, turning away a potential payday for the SEC members? I don't know the answer to that. There has to be a place at the table for the little guy. App State, Michigan. That's an upset I think about all the time. And it's something you can't recreate in pro sports. The gaps, the margins... They are so small, smaller than you might think in pro sports versus college sports. You have these great David and Goliath stories that we love that are unique, it feels like, to college sports that I don't want to see go away. I hope, I pray that there is a place, if there are these mergers, if there are these super conferences, there is still a place for smaller schools to have an opportunity and play in the big guy. Maybe I'm sympathetic to this because I went to East Carolina and in the 90s, it was David Garrard and company, coached by Steve Logan, taking down Miami and taking down Giants. 
and also being here in the triad where App State's so popular, and they created that identity the moment they won in Ann Arbor and the way that they competed in Knoxville a handful of years ago and Happy Valley and so on and so forth. I'm sympathetic to that. I think that's what makes college sports great, and I don't want us to lose it. History and tradition, it's something that's discussed quite a bit in our culture. What history is worth keeping? What history isn't? Well, is history and tradition enough of an argument not to do something? I've always felt that if history and tradition are the two things and the only two things you have against something changing, probably it should be changed if there aren't any additional reasons to support the argument. But that doesn't mean history and tradition do not matter. I think they do. We were always told this, I think. Regardless of where you go in life, don't forget your roots. Don't forget where you came from. Because if you do, if you get away from that, you might become something else, and you might not, you might not like what you become. History and traditions, it should not drive decisions but they should not be disregarded. Ryan McGee wrote about this really well today. Our friend who was on with Dan Patrick this morning that we have on quite a bit, and he's going to do well by this. He works for the SEC Network. So Texas, Oklahoma joining the league, it really helps him. But he was describing his experience covering NASCAR and seeing what that sport has become over the last decade and the struggles they've had. And he compared it to college football because apparently a ton of SEC coaches and administrators, they love NASCAR. And they've asked McGee, well, what's happened there? What's happened with that sport? Why has attendance dissipated a bit? And McGee wrote this, and you can see this story at ESPN.com. He said, quote, I tell them about a sport that was on such a steep growth curve for so long its leadership went to sleep at the wheel and didn't realize it. There was so much money coming in via unwavering ticket sales and always rising TV revenue, it masked years of bad decisions. At some point, the leadership bought into the assumption that their core fan base would always have their backs no matter what they did. So they abandoned their roots, leaving traditional racetracks and ditching decades-long annual race dates for flashier new facilities and sexier new markets. Then literally overnight... The economy tanked and the cash flow stopped. When NASCAR looked up, the cool new fans and cool new markets it worked so hard to woo had moved on to the next cool thing. But the sport had also wandered so far from its base that the old school fans were nowhere to be found, having departed the less charming present in search of nostalgia. They were angry. Darlington Raceway was empty on Labor Day weekend. Just as college sports fans in Oklahoma and Texas will be angry when they don't see Cowboys on the football field and they don't see Jayhawks coming to town in basketball. That's what we're talking about here. College football. Is there a point of no return where it just looks like professional sports? Where you could just call it, you can call it college sports, but okay, you're in these leagues that have mergers have these super conferences, you have a playoff that looks like the NFL, and athletes are allowed to be paid now, maybe not directly by the school, but paid absurd amount of money in some circumstances, if what Nick Saban is saying is true. Bryce Young, who hasn't started a collegiate game, making close to a million dollars with 
some of the NIL opportunities he's getting, it looks like pro sports. It walks like pro sports. But I hope it doesn't change so much this cycle that it becomes pro sports. College football, it's in danger of changing too much. 336-777-1600, the number. We're on Twitter at WSJS Sports. Oh, the Carolina Panthers. They had day one of training camp today, easing into things on day one this morning. A lot of seven-on-seven work. Nothing ruling, nothing really for us to break down, which is kind of like Matt Rule's first season with the Panthers, where, sure, a lot of things happen, but everybody deep down knew it's not really the best sample to make judgments from. Matt Rule even feels that way. He never acknowledged it during last season, but this morning, he finally did. I don't know if I put a number on it. I just haven't thought, probably thought about it enough. I just know we're significantly ahead of where we were last year just from having the offseason. I mean, this time last year, at, at, this, at this very date, I was shaking hands and introducing myself to, to guys. And uh, so it was just a way different feeling. And I think part of that's personal, and I think part of that is also just football-wise, you know, understanding who guys are, guys understanding us. So I think we'll hit the field you know, tomorrow, and, and, and everyone will know what to expect, and we can get to the business of getting good at football, not trying to feel our way through everything. Nobody was affected more by COVID negatively than the Carolina Panthers last year. That rule was one of the five new NFL coaches. The other four were either NFL head coaches at one time or had an NFL head coach on their staff a former NFL coach, talking about Joe Judge hiring Jason Garrett in New York. So he was at a disadvantage. And the Panthers had more turnover than anybody going into last season. And it wasn't just COVID that hurt Carolina. Christian McCaffrey only played in three games. And K.K. Short only played in three or four. Russell Okun missed more than half the season. Those are three of the five most important guys on the roster. So everybody acknowledges it at this point. Last year was an aberration which means this year is when the grading really starts. I thought he overachieved last year. Five wins with all the things I just mentioned? That exceeded expectations to me. Matt's track record, it's been pretty consistent. You struggle in year one while trying to install a culture. He only won one game his first year at Baylor, won two his first year at Temple. I think his first year in the NFL checked that box. But it seems players are responding to him and his staff. The best example of this being the Panthers' vaccination rate. We learned today Sam Darnold actually has been vaccinated. He got his second shot 11 days ago, make it 12 days ago, on July the 16th, which means two days from now he will be officially fully vaccinated. And he joins a large group of this team that's been fully vaccinated. 92% of the team, that's third in the league in terms of vaccination rate, according to reports. And who knows, some of the guys who haven't been vaccinated, maybe they've already had the virus and have antibodies, probably don't need the vaccine at this point. So that tells me players are buying into what he's selling, and they trust Matt Rule to give them good information. He took some heat for the way he approached COVID earlier this year, after the Darnold report, after Darnold first said he was unvaccinated and was going to do more homework on it. When Rule didn't say strongly, This is what a guy should do. You need to do this. You need to be vaccinated. He took heat for that, but he earned some trust with his players. Cole Beasley, what he's taken issue with, and he had, he read a prepared statement today in Buffalo. He felt doctors 
and maybe even Bill's coaches were being disingenuous and hiding some information from from him. And maybe other uh, maybe other players feel that way. Hey, here are all the positives. We're not telling you any of the negatives at all. So there's there was some broken trust there. That's what I heard from Cole Beasley. Matt Rule has the trust of his players, and that's important. I think this team should win. The grading with Matt Rule starts now. The team should win with an improved defense. You have an edge rusher to complement Brian Burns and Hassan Reddick. You upgraded at middle linebacker Denzel Perryman replacing Tahir Whitehead. You drafted a corner in J.C. Horn to go across from Dante Jackson. That's an upgrade from Rasul Douglas a year ago. Jeremy Chen's playing his natural position at safety now. You have a guy who consistently has been able to play in the trenches in Daquan Jones. That will be an upgrade over K.K. Short, who hasn't played the last two years. Derek Brown apparently is going to take a big step, according to all his teammates. That's the guy they've been pointing to. Burns saying, oh, that guy's going to be maybe a Pro Bowl caliber player. I expect that guy to step up big time. Denzel Perryman even said that. So I like this Panthers team. I think they're a playoff team. And if they get their eight, nine wins this year after the five-win season a year ago, the trajectory looks pretty good for Matt Rule and company. I called the Chamber of Joey Pale Bodies, and they said you're their president. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. We've got weekly positivity in a few minutes. The Carolina Hurricanes have retooled their roster today. A complete overhaul of their goaltending room. They traded Warren Fogle to the Edmonton Oilers to bring in a defenseman. They signed another named Ian Cole to a cheap contract. But the deal that's getting the most attention was something that was rumored on yesterday's show that we brought up, not confirmed until the last hour, that the Canes have agreed to a one-year, $1 million contract with controversial former Rangers defenseman Tony D'Angelo. Now, let me be perfectly clear on this. Tony D'Angelo does have a past that's worth investigating. It's relevant when you're talking about team culture. Seven years ago, he was suspended multiple times at 18 years old in the Ontario Hockey League for using racial slurs. I don't think we know specifically what slurs he said, but he's been accused of being abusive in his locker room. The final straw with the Rangers earlier this year was when he uh, had a confrontation with his own goalie, then was put on waivers. So a bit of a problem child. But what I fall back on is I trust Rod Brindamore, Dom Waddell, and Tom Dundon to make the right decision. And in the press release, this is the quote that Waddell included on why they picked up D'Angelo. Quote, Tony is a smooth skating, puck moving defenseman. We've done a lot of background work on this player, and we are confident he can be a positive addition to our group. I don't have a problem with that. The Canes decision makers have earned my trust, and they should have earned the trust of Hurricane fans who aren't bandwagoners. Hurricane fans, see, I have two teams I root for. It's the Canes, it's the Orioles, that hasn't changed. Those are the teams I I wear on my sleeve, I have pride in, and I've followed for a very long time. 
It seems we have a lot of new Canes fans that have jumped on since the Canes have started becoming good who say now, yo, I'm going to stop rooting for this team. I'm done. Shut up. (laughs) Just shut up. I don't want to hear from those people today. I really don't because I and many other Canes fans have wallowed through nine consecutive seasons of not making the playoffs to see this new management take over. New ownership with Dundon, Brenda Moore as the coach, and Dom Waddell as the general manager. And three consecutive seasons, they've made the postseason. And last year, they were awesome. And Rob Brenda Moore was the coach of the year. And deservedly so. They've done enough to earn our trust here. They have more information than we do. And what I admire about any great leader in today's day and age, you don't make decisions based on how the public and the media are going to react. If you empower those behind their keyboard who get upset, welcome to hell. If you're going to let them dictate what decisions you make, you know, they're not driven by public opinion. They're trying to improve this hockey team. And prior to this signing, They've done things that fans didn't like before. Trading away Hayden Flurry comes to mind. Not paying Noah Hannafin before we learned eh, how subpar Noah Hannafin was. Chuck Caton, John Forsman. I'm not going to support this team anymore. I like John and Chuck. Well, you, you still, they were right. You'd still continue to follow. You'd still continue to watch. I'm friends with both John and Chuck, but... The Canes were absolutely right there, and they've made a lot of the right decisions all along. So I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt, considering the nine years we suffered through and what we've seen the last three, to see where this ends up. What they need, D'Angelo could bring. Is there a chance this could blow up in their face? Yes. But it is a low-risk, prove-it deal. One year, $1 million. If it doesn't work, you can get rid of the guy. And it's not going to be that difficult to do so. What they need, though, D'Angelo could bring. He's a right-shooting, power-play-initiating defenseman. They added a defenseman from Edmonton. Bear is his last name. Never heard of the dude, if I'm being honest. But they didn't bring back Dougie Hamilton. They low-balled Hamilton on the contract. He went elsewhere. He got more. Good for Dougie. Carolina needs to find a way to replace him, and they are operating in a place where, okay, well, where's the best value? Well, people hate Tony D'Angelo right now. Nobody wants to touch him with a 19-and-a-half-foot pole, but he could help our power play, and we trust our culture, and we trust what we're doing, and it's a one-year, one-million-dollar contract. So, no, I don't have a problem with the Canes taking a chance on Tony D'Angelo based on... What he said is an 18-year-old kid and also served a punishment for uh, seven years ago. And since then, yes, he's been a problem, but we're not talking about a criminal here. We're not talking about somebody who's been charged with sexual assault or abuse or any, any crime. That's not what we're looking at here. He's not popular. He's controversial. There's no question. But can he help the hockey team? There's a chance the answer to that question is yes. And if that's the case, I have no problem with 
Dundon, Brindamore, or Waddell taking a swing here. On Twitter at sports, WSJS Sports, 336-777-1600 is the phone number here. There's a political aspect I'm not really interested in getting into as well, where he was on Twitter, he was a bit of a troll, he was a Trump supporter, and some don't like him for that. But from a hockey perspective, this is somebody that could help the team. At one point, you were looking at a defenseman that I think, let me see if I have the numbers in front of me here. This past season, he really struggled to the point he got waived by the Rangers. The Rangers were just a disaster this year. But at one point, he had 53 points in 68 games. That's pretty damn good for a defenseman. And it'll make the Canes interesting. There's no question about that. The Canes were called a bunch of jerks. And we all kind of scoffed at it when Don Cherry said it. Because they were the lovable bunch of jerks. Now they're the bunch of jerks and... Across the league, if you have Tony D'Angelo on your team, I don't know if they might actually think you're a bunch of actual jerks now. Let's get to weekly positivity. That was a lot of negativity surrounding this signing, and it's the middle of the week. It's hump day. So let's get to the good stuff. It's time for weekly positivity. Six seven 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 one six hundred. the phone number. On Twitter at WSGS Sports, it could be related to sports. Maybe it's not. Just tell me something good on this Wednesday. Hey, Robert. What's up, dude? Just looking for some positivity. Roaming around. Looking at you and Cole. You guys cheer me up. That's very good. I'm also doing this on Wednesday because you guys can't say the weekend is here because we normally do this on Friday. So I'm interested to see where you go now. And since Cole's less creative than Robert, Cole, tell me something good. Aaron Rodgers and uh, Randall Cobb are back with the Packers, it seems like, which as a Packers fan is... Amazing to see. They grew up watching these guys together, killing the Bears. Seeing Rodgers is good. Are we sure Randall Cobb in 2021 is good? Uh, I'm fine with it. He's going to mentor Mari Rodgers. we got Baby Cobb on the way. Mm. I don't want to get negative in weekly positivity. If this was 2016, I'd be pretty jacked about that. Just like I watched an Orioles game, they played the Nats on Saturday, and Max Scherzer got pulled right before the start of the game, and they replaced him with John Lester. John Lester pitching against Matt Harvey of the Orioles. All I thought was, if this is 2015 or 2014, this would be really good. The Orioles won, so I appreciated that. Robert, tell me something good. Even though we're not at the weekend, you could say it's halfway to the weekend, which is a good thing. 
Uh, really looking forward to the weekend. I'm doing my birthday stuff this weekend because some of my friends wouldn't be able to make it. Uh, I got like a river trip planned. Wow. Checking out Fratelli's on Friday. Might play some golf or do something on Saturday. So a big weekend. Looking forward to it. I didn't know you golf. Uh, I, I dabble when people are in town. There's only a few people I'll play with. Let's go to John in Burlington who has something good. Hey, John. Hey, guys. How we doing? I'm doing good. What do you have Love for it. me today? I'm going to be a father for the first time. Me and my wow. wife just found out that we're going to have our first kid. And uh, I can't really tell any of our family yet or uh, really anybody else. So this is kind of my way of being able to say that out loud without anybody really know who it's coming from. So That's pretty good. So me, if me and my fiancé have a kid one day, we've been talking about maybe some of the ways we might handle it. Are you going to want to learn the gender ahead of time? And if you do, do you want to have one of those gender reveal parties? Uh, we definitely want to know ahead of time because my wife likes to have everything planned out like seven months in advance. But I don't think we're going to do a gender reveal. It's a little too cliche. I respect that. Well, congratulations, Big Daddy John in Burlington. Appreciate the call. That's pretty good. I don't think we're going to be able to top that. So we'll close things up on weekly positivity. Robert, it does seem like that the more and more we do this segment, the more cool things we learn that are happening in people's lives in the triad. Somebody learning that they just got a promotion. Somebody learning that they're going to going to be moving somewhere cool that they just bought their first house that in this instance they're going to be parents i love stuff like that it makes me feel good doesn't it make you feel good yeah it warms the cockles of my heart cockles interesting word there one of the nfl's best corners asked for a trade in the most public way i maybe have ever seen we'll tell you who and how and who the perfect fit might be for this corner next on The Drive. Although his mind is still as sharp as ever, he occasionally has trouble seeing small print and needs the assistance of a handheld ferret to read letters. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Be honest, Robert. Be honest, Cole. Any of you guys get tripped up? by the fake Kelvin Benjamin report from the day. It's true that the Giants released Kelvin. It's true they released him after Kelvin had a heated conversation with Joe Judge and Dave Gettleman before storming off the field. What's not true is something some Twitter troll put out there masquerading as a reporter saying it was because he was caught on camera stealing food and taking it back home from the Giants facility. I never saw that. I was like, oh, so he didn't get in a heated thing with Joe Judge. I was like waiting for you to tell me what part of this wasn't true. Oh, no. I saw about a dozen people saying, well, this isn't surprising. Calvin's never going to change. There's a reason why he's a tight end instead of a wide receiver now. Probably stole food and brought it back home in all the facilities he worked at. Or played for. 
it turned out not to be true. Also, would that be so bad in the NFL when everybody has these inflated salaries to have food available that players could just grab and take back home? Would that be the worst thing? I'm sure they can do that. I'm pretty sure they can. That's then crazy. Again, I, I Then again, we have a communal space that we share with a law office in Kernersville. And if anybody tried to take my food, I would be so upset. Has that happened to you here? It hasn't happened to me in the three years I've been here. No, nah, nobody's ever taken my food before. Everybody's great, which is good. I've been accused of stealing somebody's food before. Haven't done that. You know? Hey, did you take some of these cups here? Things like that. But you, know, you got a communal space. Can't be taking stuff out of it. So things. some things are true that's reported. Some aren't. And it's true, Kelvin Benjamin... Did Kelvin things and got cut by the Giants today. Turns out a lot of people forgot that Kelvin was still on an NFL roster right now. Well, he's not anymore. It's not true that he was stealing food from the facility, which was a really well-placed joke by somebody who fooled a lot of the blue check marks on Twitter. Speaking of fooling people, it's time for us to play Culture Shock. Here's how it goes. Robert and I, we have some facts that you probably know about famous people. Could be an athlete, could be a some sort of entertainer, a movie star, or maybe a potentially a singer, a rapper, you name it. And it's two truths and a lie. And all Cole has to do is identify which of the three statements we give him is a lie. I pulled one. Robert's pulled a couple here. Cole is a nerd who keeps track of his record for some reason. He's gotten five right, four wrong, we've learned. And Cole is 20 years old. And the genesis of this was we were talking about the Britney Spears doc, and Cole pretty proudly said, I don't know anything about Britney Spears. Cole, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Robert, get us started. I'm going to start with Avril Lavigne. You know much about Avril Lavigne, Cole? Avril Lavigne? Avril Lavigne. No. Not very much, right? No relation to Adam Lavigne? Uh, I'm not sure. I Actually, I don't no, think so. No, different spelling. Yeah, different okay. spelling. B-Dot, when I taught him about Avril Lavigne... Actually, I'm going to let you say your facts first. Say your facts first, then I'll tell the B-Dot story. I appreciate that. Uh, okay, so I've got a couple here for you, Cole. Right. Uh, first thing about Avril Lavigne, she plays the possum on Over the Hedge. I don't know if you ever seen the movie Over the Hedge. It was popular yeah. when you were probably in middle school. Uh, she's from Ohio, and rumors say that she died in 2003 and was replaced by a clone. Oh, wow. Man. That's just the rumors, though. Yeah. Robert, I hate to break it to you. Over the Hedge came out in 2006. Cole, when you when were you born? Uh, 2000. Wow. He would have been in first grade. That's yeah. a great movie. I do like that movie. So a lot. He's seen it. Yeah. So. But I don't know much about like the cast. Just with like when I was you know an animated movie when I was younger. So I assume she probably played what was it the possum. Yeah, that's what I said. She does. She played the possum. Could be. Could be a trick question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how possum. I do, man. You know how I do. Um, Ohio. I mean, 
That's one out of 50. <laughs> I have a good odds of winning. Oh, God, getting that one. So we'll just say uh, she's from Ohio. And rumors are true. It's rumors. Um, so I assume rumors have been made many of times about Avril Lavigne. So I'm going to say she wasn't the possum. She was the possum. Oh, she She's actually possum. a famous Canadian. Uh, yeah. She is one of the most noteworthy Canadians. Isn't she married to the lead singer from Nickelback as well? Uh, sure. I, don't, I think I, she's married to Chad Kroger. That could I be a truth or true. I have no idea. Somebody who was pretty popular at about the time Avril Lavigne was very popular. Oh, I forgot the B-Dot story. B-Dot, I, talked, I introduced him to Avril Lavigne's music. And then later on, he confided to me that he did not know that Avril Lavigne was a woman. He thought Avril Lavigne was a dude. How about that? Next one up for Cole, Lindsay Lohan. You know much about Lindsay Lohan's work, Cole? Um, not too much. Okay. Let's see how you'll do here, though. Uh... First fact about Lindsay Lohan. She has had six court-ordered rehab stints. She is best known for her work in movies. Three consecutive years she did these movies. Mean Girls, The Notebook, and Wedding Crashers. And the last fact, Lindsay Lohan was at one time a popular musician. Had a couple of hits, three or four hits in the mid-2000s that had some success on the Billboard charts. Which of those is a lie? Alright, um, so movies, uh, like the movie one, the second one, I think that one's um, true because I've seen um, two of those movies. So Which assume. ones have you seen? Uh, I've seen Wedding Crashers and the second one. Remember, but I have seen it. When you mean said Girls it. or The Notebook? You've seen The Notebook? Yeah, unfortunately. It was a notebook. I didn't want to say it. Um, but the first one, uh, court-ordered rehabs, I know that's uh, kind of a thing that I think I know her for. Like, that was what made her pretty popular. So I think number three uh, was The Lie for Lindsay Lohan. Oh, Cole. Actually, she was in Mean Girls... But the person that was in all three of those movies was her co-star in Mean Girls, Rachel McAdams, who was the star of The Notebook and Wedding Crashers. You haven't seen Mean Girls? No. That's surprising. So the two movies you have seen, you thought maybe I was talking about Rachel McAdams rather than Lindsay Lohan here, and you just assumed that Lindsay Lohan was Rachel McAdams? Is that what just happened here? Yeah, it must have been. All right, Cole's 0 for 2. What's the last one here for Cole here in Culture Shock? I've got Mike Tyson for you, Cole. Something right. you probably know a little bit more about. You've heard a little bit more about. Uh, which one of these things is a lie? Uh, he was arrested 38 times by the time he was 13. Uh, he has an affinity for pigeons and once bit the ear off Sonny Liston. All right. I know he bit <laughs> an ear off somebody, but you, another one you probably are tricking me on. Um, but knowing the way the first question went um i'm gonna say that one was true um pigeons that does seem like like a random thing that i do know i'm about michael uh about mike tyson um michael i almost called him michael uh, but uh say the first one is a lie 
was the first one? Um, the amount of times he was arrested. Yeah, yeah, amount of times arrested. That it seems like it's such a high number for 13 years old. That was actually true. Uh, he, wow. He did bite the ear off someone, <laughs> but he bit the ear off of Evander Holyfield. Yep. Yeah, I knew Muhammad it was a trick. Ali knocked <laughs> out Sonny Liston in the 60s. So, yeah, I don't think Sonny Liston's ear was getting bitten off Mike Tyson in the 90s. That's a really good one, Robert. That was a good trick you have there. Do you have a good Tyson impression? Uh, I don't know. It's just like like if you were saying, like, what kind of fish did you catch today, Michael? And he said, bath. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's the extent of my all, Mike Tyson. All I got is, I broke my back, spinal. And that's been another sterling edition of culture shock Cole that record starting to look pretty bad 5 and 7 if I'm doing my math straight here Cole's learning some things what did you learn most uh, out of culture shock today I watched some Lindsay Lohan movies well actually apparently you haven't (laughs) you've watched some uh, Rachel McAdams movies that you thought was Lindsay Lohan there you go. You should check out Herbie the Love Bug. Solid flick. Yeah, Herbie Fully Loaded. See, Robert, do you remember Lindsay Lohan's songs? I I remember that she had them, but like similar to many other Disney CD releases or single releases, like I I couldn't right. tell you what the name of them are, but right. I knew that she had music like anyone else in that category. Yeah, she had a song called Sassy. That was pretty good. And, gosh, what was the name of some of those other ones? But some of them actually did had some success. Maybe next week we could do uh, Hillary Duff if we're going down this path. Used to have a huge crush on Hillary Duff. Anyway, up next, what concerns me the most about college football realignment we're seeing this week? You are here on a Wednesday drive. <laughs> He tries to be funny. Obnoxious. It really is obnoxious. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Some say that August is a slow month on the sports calendar. But those people just don't happen to live in the triad because leading up to the start of football season... We've got the Wyndham Championship in Greensboro that's collecting this tremendous field that's been added to today. Already knew about Justin Rose, a major champ, joining Brant Snedeker and many of the local names you know, including Will Zalatoris and Webb Simpson. Bubba Watson today announced the former Masters champ. He's going to be a part of the Wyndham Championship in just a few weeks. And then a couple of days after that wraps up, The Winston-Salem Open going to be back in our lives. Canceled last year. Returning this year. Make sure you go out and support this event because it's a lot of fun. If you haven't been, you need to go. If you've already been, well, we're going to figure out what exactly it's going to look like post-pandemic as Jeff Ryan, the tournament director of the Winston-Salem Open, Open joins us now. They just announced what their field was this morning. It's good to have you on in the triad, Jeff. Give me a sense. Last year, 
when you unfortunately had to announce this tournament could not happen, like many tournaments we've seen across sports in many different uh, aspects. What was the most difficult piece about not having it last year? Hey, Josh, good to be here. Nice to nice to connect with you. Thanks for having me so much. Of course. Um, you know, look, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't what I had uh, envisioned as my first uh, as my first um, <clears throat> you know uh, action in my role as tournament director, and it was certainly a sad day when we had to make that announcement. But uh, today feels pretty good. You know, we have 38 players that have joined our draw. And um, we are excited about rounding out that field with another uh, eight to ten people in the coming weeks. So um, we're back in business, and we've got the courts going under uh, resurfacing, and the stadium's about to go up. So it's it's a good time. Tell me about the field. What stands out to it? Uh, what stands out to you about it? Me personally, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly excited about Marin Chilich. Uh, he's he's a uh, uh, wow, he's an Olympian. He's yep. a Davis Cup champion. He's uh, he's a Grand Slam champion. I mean, his rank is 37 right now, but uh, that doesn't tell his whole story. And he's coming to Winston Salem, which, by the way, should be um, should be, and and I feel like they are. They recognize it. Uh, very appreciative of the fact that they have um, you know a tournament here right right in their hometown. Um, look. Kevin Anderson's coming back. He's he's won the tournament in the past. He just won a title in Newport. He's great to have back. Um, Nick Kyrgios, uh, I think you're going to find that a lot of people know of him because he kind of transcends the sport and uh, is a really dynamic player. Yeah, Nick uh, at one time, to hold you up real quick, he was ranked, what, close to the top 10? And, I mean, a great yeah. personality. Anybody who loves tennis knows what Nick's all about. Yeah, personality is a good, good, good word here for Nick, and and we're excited to have him coming, and um, you know he he will he will represent kind of a new flavor. Um, I, I I feel like he's a flavor in the sport of tennis that we need, and I'm a big proponent of his. Um, you know, we we owe a lot of respect for our number one seed, who's Lorenzo Sonego, uh, and he's part of what we'll call the Italian squad that um, is so dominant in the tem- tennis landscape these days. I mean, the Italians are, are are really dominating our sport these days. They're accomplishing a lot. He's not the top Italian, but he's, he's certainly up there. And uh, Winston Salem should be, should be really excited to see those guys. And let me not, let me not disrespect my buddy, the big foe, Francis TFO. He's coming <laughs> back. He's coming back actually from Japan. Um, just talked to that camp a little while ago. He's excited to be back here couple other Americans like Marco Cirone, Stevie Johnson. So, you know, look, with a cutoff of 80, I think the field is, is rounding out to be really nice. But let me stress that um, we still have a ways to go. We have some other spots to fill, and I'm excited about that as well. Yeah, it's Jeff Ryan with us here, Winston-Salem Open Tournament Director, the event from the 21st of August through the 28th. Really exciting week at Wake Forest University. Make sure to follow the event if you haven't been there before we'll certainly be following it day to day while it's going on uh is the plan to still have full capacity at the event we were one of the first tournaments to uh establish that that we were going to be able to be back at 100 percent capacity thanks to the uh the relaxation of uh, of covid guidelines here in the state 
I think it was done very prudently. Uh, I, I don't um, take anything for granted, but I, I'm, I'm glad to see the state back open. And it was a pleasure to make that call that day and say that we're able to be open. And I'm incredibly proud that we were also one of the first tournaments to, to reestablish 100% prize money. Because during COVID tournaments, we're allowed to reduce prize money, which, as you can imagine, isn't, isn't always a popular thing. Um, but uh, we reestablished it, and we're 100% open, 100% prize money. Great spot for us to be in. Jeff, look forward to being out at the event. Thank you so much for making the time for us here uh, in the triad, and uh, good luck with getting this event back in front of the fans. Uh, we certainly look forward to watching. Thank you, sir. Nice to hey, meet oh, you, Josh. Yeah, nice to talk to you as well. That's Jeff Ryan from the Winston-Salem. Open his time is appreciated. Oh, Robert. The Big 12 is big mad. Pete Thamel just put out a report in the last 15-20 minutes. Breaking! At Pete Thamel on Twitter. The Big 12 has sent a cease and desist letter to ESPN. The letter demands ESPN end quote all actions that may harm the conference and its members and that it not communicate with the Big 12's existing members or any NCAA conference regarding the Big 12's conference members, possible conference realignment, or potential financial incentive or outcomes related to possible conference realignment. Whoa! <laughs> This is amazing. The Big 12 is telling ESPN. So it's great when college football fans get mad at networks thinking, oh, because you're partnered with this league, that's why you say good stuff about the SEC. That's a popular thing people say about ESPN all the time, which is funny because I think as McGee pointed out with us a few times, in the 90s it was completely on the other foot. There were SEC fans were convinced ESPN hated them, and that's why Charles Woodson was allowed to win the Heisman over Peyton Manning 20-plus years ago. So that's completely flipped. The Big 12 is so mad right now, and they're going after ESPN. ESPN, they have the playoff, and they're in bed with the SEC, and they've got the SEC network, and they're mad because we're with uh, Fox, and yeah, you know, you need to stop harming our conference with your broadcasting and communication and... You know, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. This is amazing, is it not? I mean, it's a little weird, yeah. But uh, it's amazing. A cease and desist to ESPN from a conference. Oh my god, I love this. What were you saying though? No, it's just just a little crazy that that, that this is what it's came to, and the fact that they are big mad. That's what I draw from it. <laughs> They're really mad right now. Like Bob Bowlesby has to be pretty pissed when he's complimenting for the last few months SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey for doing what's best for college football while they put together the college football playoff format. See, that there was uh, there's an 11 member I think Board of Governors. I might get some of the titles wrong here. But there are 11 people in charge of what happens with the playoff moving forward. There's a current contract that goes to 2025. Eh, you can kind of change that 
and get a new format in earlier if you wanted to. I think the earliest they could do that is 2023-2024 that season. So they're not exactly married to it, just as long as they're broadcasting on ESPN, which it seems like that's going to remain the case. But out of that 11-member group, there was a working group of four that the last two years investigated different formats that might work for college football for the college football playoff. And that committee consisted of, that subcommittee, of Greg Sankey, Bob Bowlesby, the Big 12 commish that apparently just sent the cease and desist letter to ESPN, the Mountain West Conference commish that is completely irrelevant, I don't even remember what his name is, and Notre Dame AD, Jack Swarbrick. They put together this playoff format. And mind you, while this is happening, while they're putting together a format that Bob Bowlesby applauded Sankey for you know, doing what's best for college sports. I appreciate you, man. Shout out to you, Sankey. Greg Sankey had been talking to Texas and Oklahoma for at least the last six months. He knew. He knew that they wanted to leave and that they're, they're breaking all this down. So if you're Jim Phillips in the ACC, what do you do? How do you react to this? How do you fight back? Well, the one clear, obvious answer is get Notre Dame in the league. But you don't have as much leverage, especially with a 12-team playoff format. If it's easier for Notre Dame to get into the playoff, well, why would they join the ACC? When there's more value, they feel, to their independence. So if you're Phillips, I think the thing you need to fight is this 12-team format now. You need to get that changed. You need to get that flipped. You need to get that reevaluated. And while Phillips has not been quoted talking about the playoff format since the Texas-Oklahoma rumors surfaced, or really hasn't even given a comment to anybody since the rumors surfaced four or five hours after Phillips spoke to the media, his first press conference. You know, we, we don't know what he thinks about it. We We have heard from the Pac-12 commission he talked to The Athletic and Nicole Auerbach saying, yeah, this is something we need to reevaluate because those four aren't looking out for the Pac-12 or the ACC. Maybe the ACC felt that Swarbrick was going to represent their best interests. It doesn't appear the, that, that he did because the people that benefited the most from a 12-team format, the SEC and Notre Dame. The Big 12 thought they were benefiting but as they were putting this together, Bob Bowlesby did not know that the SEC was poaching Texas and Oklahoma behind his back. Jack Swarbrick, he, he wants more at-large opportunities so Notre Dame can easily get into the playoff, even if they don't get a top-four seed. And the SEC wants to get five, six teams into the playoff, which would be easier if you have Texas and Oklahoma. You need to fight that back. And... Here's a pretty clear argument on doing so. When the BCS was a thing, the Big East had an automatic bid. And the Big East then became the American, and the American was not seen as an autonomous five conference, in other words, a power five conference, when that language came into effect in college sports. Why? Because many of those schools departed to the ACC and elsewhere. Is the Big 12 
by the time we get to a new playoff format, going to be strong enough without Texas and Oklahoma to warrant an automatic bid to this new playoff? Of course not. Without Texas and Oklahoma, why should they get an automatic bid? And if they don't get an automatic bid, well, why do you need 12 then? Why do we need 12 playoff spots when there are four power conferences? And who knows with all this shifting if there are even four? So if I'm the ACC, my way to fight back, if I can't get Notre Dame in the league by just asking politely, hey, we need to respond to what the SEC is doing here, is to fight back on this playoff format and find a way to get it down to six or eight or keep it the way it is. But you have to be like a conference champ, which would never happen. I'm for expansion. I've said that before. But that was before we have this information about Texas and Oklahoma now and the uncertainty surrounding the Big 12 Conference. If you're acting in the best interest of the ACC, you need to cut down the amount of teams that make this playoff because that's the only way you get Notre Dame. And the only way you get a new grant of rights with ESPN, a new TV deal, which is much needed, and cut into this revenue gap is by getting Notre Dame in the league. So that needs to be the priority. That's the way you fight if you're Jim Phillips. That's what I think is next for the ACC.